I love you too, Brian. As my knee is shattered. <laughs> That's what I get for trying to talk to David and walk at the same time. Uh, we'll go ahead and get started. I haven't heard the bell. Did the bell ring in my... Okay, good. All right. Well, I, I'll, we'll get started then on time. We are picking up in lesson four, and I've got some extra handouts. If you didn't get one, or maybe you left yours at home as you were studying this week on that wonderful lesson last week, um, maybe you don't have the handout. I've got a couple left, and Wayne's got them, so you can have them until they run out if you want to raise your hand, and uh, he'll bring those around to you, and uh, we'll get started on that here momentarily. Are there any prayer requests or announcements that need to be made this morning? I went over and gave Sister Sybil a hug around her neck. We need to keep that family in our prayers and keep her in our prayers and as that adjustment period continues. Uh, Carol, uh, her daughter's mother-in-law, grandmother-in-law, uh, passed away. She was 99, right? Okay. Okay, so she had been living with the family for five years. Obviously, that, it's going to be sad on them to deal with that loss, but uh, remember that. Her name's Rosalind and her family uh, in your prayers. Anybody else? Anything else this morning? Anybody need a handout? If you raise your hand, Wayne will bring it around to you. We're on lesson four from last week. All right. Let's bow our heads together and let's, let's start off with a prayer. Heavenly Father, God Almighty, we are so thankful for another day, first day of the week that we can gather together as your family. And God, we're thankful for this time of Bible study where we can open up your word and see all the things that you have to say to us. And God, we ask that you be with us as we continue this study on your spirit. May we see lessons and points and principles from the, the scripture to be able to help us understand you and in your spirit so much more fully. God, we are thankful for our family here at Dalreda, and we know there are so many that are dealing with sicknesses or losses. We especially remember uh, Sister Sybil and, and the Nall family as they continue to um, deal with the loss of Brother Joe. And we ask that you please be with them, help comfort them and strengthen them in all ways that are possible. Help us to give her our love and our support so she knows that her family here at Dalreda is there for her. And, and God, we ask you to help us to do that to others as well. Be with Carol's family as they deal with the loss of their grandmother. And we ask that you help comfort and strengthen them if possible in this time. And God, in all things, we ask that you help remind us that you are in control and that all things we do, uh, we should do in accordance with you and your will. And those things which you want us to do. And as we Speak to others, our friends, our family, that we do our best to help show them who you are and what you want us to do with our lives. God, more than anything, we're thankful for Jesus, for his sacrifice on the cross, for our sins, and it's through his name that we offer this prayer. Amen. As I said, we're going to pick up from lesson four from last week. We got a little bit into the lesson, if you remember. We were in talking about some of the metaphors, the comparisons that we see in Scripture that deal with the Spirit. We first talked about oil, and uh, I mean the dove, and then we moved on to the oil. The dove, of course, is a symbol of purity, of sanctification, of 
of uh, peacefulness and those kind of ideas kind of come forth as you think about the spirit being in the form of a dove as we see him coming upon Jesus at his baptism and as God himself speaks out in commendation of Jesus and all the things that, that Jesus will do and will be that he is proud of him, that he is his son and he's well pleased. And all those things come through uh, with the appearance of the spirit in the form of a dove. Uh, those kind of ideas from the metaphor of a dove, I think, speak volumes about the Spirit in the New Testament. And you see further examples. We, we began discussing the oil and the idea that there are scriptures talking about the Spirit anointing Christ. And so that becomes an imagery of oil. And, and think about the way the oil is used in the, the New and really the Old Testament scriptures. Kind of help us kind of understand why this metaphor would be important with regard to this, the Spirit. We first talked about the idea of oil being there used for anointing purposes. And if you read throughout the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament, the idea and concept of anointing by oil is a way to specifically set someone apart for a specific task or deed or some type of service, some type of a work. And so that, that concept of oil being used for the anointing speaks a little bit about what the Spirit is and the fact that God's Spirit and the anointing of Christ, or the, if you want to say that He's involved in the anointing of Christians with regard to our salvation, the, the, the point there being that the Spirit is important or as part of something very important in that the Spirit helps set apart for a specific task, whether it's the Spirit himself being part of that task. He had a specific task, a specific purpose in coming. Uh, he had some of those things that, that God had set him apart to do, convey his word, convey his will to man, uh, or the Spirit being involved with us in the anointing of our lives or in Christ's situation where we see that Christ was anointed with oil, uh, being that, that Christ was set apart for a specific deed or purpose or, or thing in his life. And so you see the, the concept of the anointing of oil uh, being important uh, and metaphor and analogy for, for the Spirit. A couple other uses of oil real quickly in the, in the Old and the New Testament that we see uh, how oil could also be viewed and maybe how it uh, conveys some type of a metaphor or importance with regard to the Spirit. You see the fact that uh, oil is also used for providing light. Uh, Exodus chapter 27, verse 20, the people of Israel there were spoken to by God. And, and ultimately here, uh, God said, You shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil of beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. Several other passages of Scripture talk about the necessity or the use of oil to giving light. And in fact, the idea of, of oil being used for providing this light, this uh, ability to be able to see more clearly the way before you, uh, could come, I think, as a good metaphor with regard to the Spirit and those things which are involved uh, in a Christian uh, and involved with regard to the Spirit's role even today and the fact that the Spirit allows us to see things more clearly. Uh, the Spirit provides that light. You could even say in some respects that the Spirit of light, which uh, he is not specifically called that I could find in, in scriptures, uh, is, is because he's the spirit of truth. And he is called the spirit of truth multiple times. We'll get to the passages in John where he's called the spirit of truth. But the idea and the concept there is that the, the spirit provides this guiding light, this ability to see in the midst of darkness. And it's not necessarily the lamp that provides the light, it's the oil. Without the oil, the light would not be shown. Think about the parable of the ten virgins. And you see there, they were commended. Why? Because they were prepared, their lamps were trimmed with oil. And so you see there the importance of oil being a very important factor in providing light, being prepared 
for the darkness, being prepared to see the way. Uh, you see, I think the analogy is there that thinking of the Spirit as being oil or using that metaphor of oil could become very important for us. And finally, the third way that uh, scriptures talk about oil, and I think another way that this metaphor of the Spirit being likened to oil uh, could kind of hit home to us would be the idea of the use of oil for healing. You know, in the Old Testament, oil is used in a, or in Old and New Testament, the, the use of oil is used in medicinal purposes. And the use of oil sometimes could be seen and perceived as being a way to healthy, healthfulness. Uh, and so the, the use of oil to these individuals would be understood as being a healing component. Uh, James chapter 5, if you'll remember, verse 14 talks about calling the elders to anoint with oil. Most, most people would look at that passage and say they're really kind of talking about medicinal value here. Maybe the spiritual as well, but there's a medicinal purpose for oil. Uh, there's other passages in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 6. And then you look over in the New Testament in Luke chapter 10, verse 34, the Good Samaritan. Remember that, that story and that parable of the Good Samaritan? Um, the, the, the Samaritan actually used oil to dress and treat the wounds of the injured. And so the Samaritan wouldn't be able to use that for a healing or a comforting type of a purpose. Well, how does that translate with regard to the Spirit? If the Spirit's compared to oil and oil is used for uh, healing or for comforting with regard to injuries, don't you see the comparison there with regard to the Spirit? The Spirit is used for comforting and for healing, not necessarily on a physical level, but you could see that, I think, with regard to the spiritual level. When it comes to uh, spiritual sin, the Spirit provides the solution for healing of the spiritual sin uh, through his words and through God's words given to him, uh, through him uh, to us. Uh, the idea of anointing with sick of oil and the medicinal qualities, I think, could be a fitting symbol for the spirit and the healing powers and the spiritual lives of all who are obedient to God uh, there with regard to him. So you see these kind of three different ways that oil is used. And so when you see the analogy of the spirit uh, being compared to oil, and the illusion made there with regard to the anointing of the Spirit, these kind of things kind of pop in your head. You see a couple other comparisons real quickly. Uh, thirdly, you see that, uh, that the Spirit is compared to a seal. And a seal, of course, was a symbol of multiple different things uh, in the uh, Old Testament and even on, on into the, the first century. Look over with me real quickly to Ephesians chapter uh, 1. If you look in Ephesians chapter 1, you'll see this metaphor for the Spirit and you'll see kind of uh, hopefully a little bit of why uh, it's a good comparison for the Spirit for us to try and, and explain to us His use and the things that He does, His purpose. So it says there, in Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, also having believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of purpose or a promise. I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit of promise. And other passages of Scripture also talk about this seal. And if you flip a couple pages over to chapter 4, verse 30, you'll see the same kind of comparison there of the Spirit to the seal. And it says there in verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so an illusion, a comparison, a metaphor of the Spirit to a seal is in the Scriptures for us. And as the New Testament kind of looks at uh, the Spirit as a seal, what does this mean for us? Well, as I said, in the first century even, there was a lot of different purposes and uses for a seal. 
And if you look throughout the scriptures, you'll see different comparisons and different things that the, the, the use or the identification of a seal uh, would provide to the individuals. You'll see that, one, it's an identifying mark or a symbol. In Genesis chapter 38, verses 18 through uh, and 25 there, there was a, an idea of the signet ring that was taken by Tamar when Judah came to her. And that signet ring would have been something that would have created a seal. And so that signet ring then is compared to ultimately an identifying mark for who Judah was. If you read that story of, of Judah and Tamar, you see that Tamar, of course, took that uh, under disguise. And, and as, as it was revealed to Judah, ultimately what he had done in impregnating his daughter-in-law, you'll see the fact that she kept that seal, that signet ring for herself because it did what? It identified him. And so she knew that by taking that seal, uh, that ultimately that would be what would be the downfall or at least the identification of Judah would bring to light his deeds. And that's what you see the story there. So it's a seal is perceived in scriptures as being an identifying mark or symbol. If you had a certain seal, it was unique to you. It was an identifying uh, symbol of who you are, possibly what place of authority you might have. But ultimately it just was an identifying. It's like a signature that we would have today, that you have specific signatures, like a fingerprint. That Everybody had a unique fingerprint, right? And so that seal would identify the individual uh, for who they were, giving identification for them. You also see a seal being used as a security measure on important correspondence. Uh, when Jezebel sent letters to Naboth's uh, neighbors uh, there in, I believe it's, uh, what is that, Isaiah? No, 1 no, uh, Kings 21. 1 Kings 21, when uh, he had the controversy there between uh, uh, really Ahab and uh, Naboth in the vineyard that he wanted, of course. And Jezebel sent some correspondence out. I'm not going to reiterate the whole story, but she sent out uh, correspondence to all the neighbors. And with that correspondence, what did she do with those letters? She sealed them with the king's seal. She sent them out in his name is the way that the scriptures uh, speak of that seal being placed upon those correspondence uh, in the king's name. And so what you see is that it's a security measure on correspondence. Why? Because when that seal comes to you, uh, if it's been broken, then you know that it, it has been read by somebody else. Someone else has looked at what that correspondence was. And so in this situation, you see in the scriptures even how uh, this security measure helped um, uh, secure uh, what was being sent. Of course, obviously, you see how that could be translated and conveyed with regard to the Spirit, the idea that His security, He has a seal upon us and a seal upon His Word to make sure that uh, those things which are supposed to be conveyed are properly conveyed, are rightfully conveyed from God. That correspondence is sealed with the seal of God. In this case, the seal of the Spirit. So that the correspondence would, in fact, be what was right and what was true. You see it used in several other ways. You see a claim of ownership in Job chapter 9, verse 7. You see it as being a proof of a pledge in Romans chapter 4, verse 11, and 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. Uh, and in the Old Testament, if you remember, there is a, uh, the, the concept of circumcision is also compared to being a seal. And why is that? Well, circumcision itself was a way in which God showed that, or that the people showed to God, in fact, that they pledged their loyalty to him. So the nation of Israel, of course, was commanded to be circumcised. That was the identifying mark. So if you want to deal with a, the claim of ownership that we already talked about of a seal or really a proof of a pledge, the people were commanded to have this seal of circumcision on their lives so that they would be able to show that they were, in fact, committed to God. 
And so in, one, in a lot of a similar way, you see in the New Testament how it's kind of uh, very similar to that. That, you know, if you wanted to be someone who was pledged to God, if you want to pledge yourself to God, the seal of the Holy Spirit allows us to show that. It becomes the, the marking of the pledge that we have toward God. It becomes something that, that God would see with regard to us because the Spirit is the pledge or the proof of the pledge uh, on our lives. That seal, when we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, as the Scriptures talk about in Ephesians chapter 1 and 4, uh, you see there that sealing of the Spirit conveys to God that we pledge our loyalty and our honor and our obedience to him. And so you see that, I think, as being a wonderful comparison and metaphor with regard to what the Spirit does for us as Christians as it compares to what God wants in our lives. You also see in the Scriptures that the seal is evidence of a contract. Uh, there is a, after buying the field of Anathoth uh, from his cousin, Jeremiah signed the contract and sealed it as proof of that contract. Uh, you'll see that it's also a seal is used as an attestation of a person's character. It's a way that we attest to someone's um, believability, or it's a way that we attest that uh, we are confirmed by something. And so a person's character can be reinforced by a seal. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 2, Paul says the brethren at Corinth were the seal of his apostleship of the Lord. And so the seal there are the people, but the people become a proof of his apostleship, a proof of his credibility. And as he argues, it says, I am an apostle. You should believe the things that are coming from my mouth because they're coming from the spirit. They're coming from God. He says the people here are proof of that. They are a seal upon my apostleship. And so a seal can be used to convey someone's character, believability, credibility, and it can attest to who someone might be. And finally, I think a seventh way that a seal is kind of used, and I realize some of these may be bleeding into each other a little bit, but seventh way, and I think one of the most uh, prominent ways, is a confirmation of the authority that's behind the seal. When something is sealed by a king, it doesn't necessarily just mean, hey, don't break the seal, but it's saying, hey, a king sealed this. When the grave of Christ, there that tomb was sealed with the authority of the government, it was not just saying, hey, don't open this. It was sealed to show the authority to seal that tomb where it was. When Pharaoh uh, placed Joseph second in command, what did he do? He gave him his seal. Why? Because it showed the authority that Joseph now had because he had the seal of the Pharaoh. So several times throughout scriptures, you see this. You see the fact that a seal indicates a confirmation of authority. Uh, where kings, officials, they use the seals to signify and confirm the authority over a person, a place, or a document or thing. And so a seal there, I think, is seen in scriptures as being an attestation not just of character, but really of authority, uh, of why someone has the ability to use that seal. So just think about all those ways that a seal is used in scripture and throughout history. You and I can probably see those parallels and why that would be a good metaphor to use for the Spirit, right? Because the Spirit, when He seals Christians, whenever He has that seal placed upon us, as, as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 1 and, and Ephesians chapter 4, it gives us that attestation of our character as being a Christian. It shows us that we are placed uh, and signified for a specific place or purpose. 
and that the authority that has been stamped upon our lives, being that authority of God, uh, shows the authority of which we are submitting to. The seal would show us that there is an evidence of a contract or an agreement, and an evidence of a pledge that we would be having toward the one who sealed us. And so you see those comparisons and those metaphors in Scripture to kind of explain why would Paul talk about us being sealed by the Spirit? Well, you see why it would be understood in the first century. You see why it would be understood throughout history. And really those same principles and those same patterns can be extended even to to today. Uh, Regardless of what manner or what form he may be dwelling inside of us today. You know, regardless of all those things, the Spirit still acts in this way because he seals us as Christians. And we know that we are set apart. We are particular uh, people. We are people who are a special, this royal priesthood, sealed and used for uh, a specific purpose. And this seal identifies us as being Christians. It identifies us as belonging to God. The Spirit uh, allows us to be secure because of the things which has been taught and conveyed to us as Christians. And so those, those metaphors, those examples, the comparisons to being the Spirit being a seal... I think are pretty good with regard to the things in life. Real quickly, a couple more uh, metaphors we see in Scripture. You see the, the, the Scripture also talk about the Spirit being like earnest money. And uh, we've already read Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, but look in verse 14. Uh, there it says, Who has given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Now you'll see, I read from the New American Standard, uh, earnest is not being used there. If you have the King James Version, though, you're going to have the word earnest being used there in that translation. I think it's a good translation with regard to the word and the concept that Paul is talking about here. Talking about inheritance, of course, and translate that to the earnest of our inheritance or the pledge of our inheritance. It becomes a financial metaphor in some respects with regard to what we see the Spirit's involvement being because that seal, we were sealed by the Spirit, who was given. Now that's sort of a specific reference to the Spirit. He is given to us as earnest for our inheritance. Now what is our inheritance? Eternal life, salvation, right? Through Christ Jesus. So we see that comparison, we understand that, but he's given to us as an earnest or as a pledge to that. Now if you think about earnest money, and I'm, I, y'all probably bought property for the most part in here, and um, I, you, know, you may understand the idea of having earnest money in a transaction, but it's money that you put down. It's kind of like a down payment on a transaction, a financial transaction, that indicates that you will fulfill your obligation, right? That's what it is. You may not have the full entire amount at that point in time, but when you put a contract down on the house, you're going to give some earnest money there to, to make sure that the seller understands that you intend to go through with your promise, your agreement to buy that property. And so that earnest money is put down there as a pledge. That's why some translations translate it not just as earnest, but as you saw in the New American Standard, it translates it as a, new, as a pledge. The uh, ESV translates it as a guarantee. And you kind of see those two, those two other words besides earnest being a good description as to what that down payment would be, right? Because it becomes that earnest money. It becomes that guarantee. It becomes that pledge that a Christian would have uh, from God that he would fulfill his promises to us. Now, how can you miss that metaphor? That's a great metaphor, isn't it? With regard to the Spirit being that earnest money giving to us as a down payment, showing that God will fulfill his promises. You know, you got to love that, that concept because it's not just that we're going on a, you know, whisper in a prayer or hope in a prayer as we're living our lives thinking that God's going to 
bring about salvation one day. He's given us a down payment. Now, we don't always think about the Spirit that way, right? In fact, if you look around, the religious world around us considers the Spirit to be this lovey-dovey feeling of something, not necessarily the assurance that we have here of being attaining that or getting or having that eternal life one day from God. But that's what Paul's telling us here. It's not just that he seals us with the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't just seal us, but the Spirit gives us that ability to know, that guarantee for security, uh, that understanding that the Spirit is a pledge, a guarantee of a promise from God regarding salvation. When God sent a Spirit, it was to provide insurance to us that he will fulfill his promises to us. You also see the examples uh, in Scripture that the uh, Spirit is likened to water, living water, Several different passages in John chapter 4, you talk about the woman at the well when Christ talks about giving her living water. And most of us understand and remember that story. But if you flip over onto John chapter 7, verse 37 and 39, there's a little bit of explanation that's given that most of us kind of skip. And we kind of miss with regard to what Christ was telling the woman there in John chapter 4. And what John tells us in John chapter 7 is a conversation with regard to Jesus talking to those after the Feast of Booths when he spoke out there, talking about the Spirit being connected to this living water. Look real quickly, uh, verses 37 through 39 of John chapter 7. On the last day, the great day of the feast, that's a Feast of Booths if you look at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as for the scripture said, from this innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, a parenthetical type of explanation there given by John. It says there, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. I think it's very interesting there to think about that caveat there. But the Spirit is compared and has given us an example here of living water. We like to talk about the living water in John chapter 4 being salvation and being all these things that that living water would convey to uh, us even today. And the concept that we would never thirst anymore. If we have Christ, if we have this salvation, that that idea, idea really becomes that we will have want and desire for nothing else in the long run. We don't need anything else, right? Every day we need water. If we don't have water, we will die. That's just the basic biology. But with Christ, as you think of the spiritual metaphor of that water, with Christ, with salvation, we will not perish. We will never be thirsty. We will never have want or desire for anything to to maintain our lives going forward because we have our spiritual lives, that is, because we have all we need in Christ. Now, when you flip forward in John chapter 7, and actually you see here in the scriptures that he's actually speaking about the Spirit The Spirit helps give us this living water. And water, of course, is a concept most of us don't really miss out on. We understand, and there's been a lot of lessons and sermons with regard uh, to water. We know water sustains and, and, and provides life. So if the Holy Spirit's living water, he offers life to us. Just like Jesus told the woman in John chapter 4, verses 13 through 14, the Spirit becomes this symbolic Uh, this metaphor of joy and of satisfaction in our lives. 
because of this example and this metaphor of the Spirit. One of the most remarkable prophecies of the Holy Spirit as water really would be uh, over in Ezekiel chapter 47. Don't have time to dissect that prophecy in the Old Testament there, but there is a healing water there that flows down from the temple on Mount Moriah and gives life into the Dead Sea there. We see in verses 1 through 2. And the light of the gospel, we know, would go into all the world, healing and making glad all those. Some, of course, will refuse, as you see in the prophecy in verse 11 there of Ezekiel chapter 47. But the Spirit, as we know, uh, will always be on ten on providing life. We can reject it. We can turn our backs on it. That's up to our decision. But the Spirit will bring this living water into our lives if we do it through obedient faith in Jesus Christ and, and, and in God. and we, we accept those things which are outlined for us in his word. The Spirit will bring that into our lives, will give us that, that living water that gives us ultimate salvation. Now, the how he does it today, we're going to save that for some other lessons. It's not some miraculous giving. It's not some supernatural feeling. It's not some kind of an emotional response. The Spirit still brings that living water in our lives through His Word. But what you see through the text here is this metaphor of the Spirit being the living water or being likened to water is the idea and concept that the Spirit will fulfill those necessary needs and desires that we may have in our lives for spiritual sanctification, for spiritual salvation, for spiritual purity, spiritual joy, spiritual satisfaction. The Spirit is there, and the Spirit gives us those things. God, through His Spirit, provides all that we may need or want or desire with regard to our spiritual lives. And the Spirit becomes the way and the means that God acts into our lives to bring those things to us. He did it in the New Testament, as we see in these passages of Scripture there. And Jesus himself prophesied and talked about the fact that the, the Spirit is involved in bringing this living water into our lives. Uh, you look throughout the rest, and, and I hope any, any questions or comments about these metaphors before I move on? I'm not seeing any hands. All right. Real quickly, I, I want to look at in the New Testament to understand the mission of Christ you cannot help but understand and look at the Spirit's work in the Lord's mission. And in the New Testament, of course, that's what the focus of the New Testament really becomes, is Christ's mission. You see the beginning, the first four Gospels, of course, lays the groundwork and the foundation of Christ's life and the fact that his mission has been come, it has come to this world. And John, of course, talks about that, that God came from in the Spirit, or God's Son came, the Word came in the flesh, dwelt among men. His mission came upon man. And you see throughout the Gospels, the Chronicles there of, of what Jesus would do in his mission and uh, in his life. And you also see as it continues on through the New Testament, the focus is still on the mission of Christ. Now it becomes the supported efforts there that the, the disciples or the apostles and the Spirit undertake with regard to the Lord's mission in, in the world. Uh, but it's still a focus there on the mission of Christ. So really, in order to understand the Spirit in the New Testament, we, we need to kind of understand the mission and His involvement with the mission of the Lord. And so there are a lot of passages in the New Testament and a couple of concepts that I want to just kind of throw out at you. I don't have time to go over all the scriptures, but a couple points I'd like to make with regard to his involvement with the Lord's mission as he works with the Lord in the New Testament. Uh, he becomes very vital. He becomes prominent as we talked about last week as we began this lesson. The, the Spirit becomes prominent in the New Testament as he works to help fulfill that mission of the Lord. 
Now, the Spirit is the one who makes the life of Christ knowable. If we are to understand the mission of Christ, we must understand the work of the Spirit in that mission. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 uh, underscores the, the, the importance and the role that the Spirit's going to play or did play with regard to Christ's life. But real quickly, a couple of points with regard to this. First of all, the Holy Spirit revealed the Lord's mission via um, prophets. And so there are... I'm not sure why I have pre... Okay, anyways. It, it, pre-incarnate state. I, I'm using short phrases here. I should have checked my PowerPoint. But uh, the, the first point with regard to him working with it is the fact that he revealed the Lord's mission via prophets. And so how did he do that? Well, in the pre-incarnate stage there, the mission of, this, of, of Christ and the Lord was still present. We know his, his mission really was present since the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. So that, that was really the beginning, you know, where you had this mission. And God was waiting for that most opportune time to send his son uh, to help save the world from their sins. And so uh, the mission was revealed with regard to uh, prophets. Over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament were revealed by the Holy Spirit, which discussed the Lord's birth his ministry, his death, and even his resurrection. And so you see the involvement of the Spirit pre-incarnate. That's before Christ came on this earth, before the Lord was in the state of man, in the form of man on this, on this earth. The, the Spirit was still involved in his ministry and the preparation there. Uh, you can look at all the prophecies. There's hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament, as I've already said, uh, for us that we could look at, that the Spirit actually conveyed to prophets so that they would be able to prophesy of the Lord's coming so ultimately it becomes one of the proofs in the New Testament of showing why we can believe that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God because he fulfilled all these prophecies that the Spirit brought unto man. And so you see his involvement with the mission of the Lord from the very beginning there in the Old, Old Testament prophecies, even from the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, when the Lord, when God looked down on Adam and provoked really damnation on him and death because of their sin. And he talked about the fact that uh, the serpent would be ultimately stepped on by the heel. And you kind of go and follow that translation. So all the way from the fall of man to the New Testament, the Spirit's been involved as he's conveyed the prophecies uh, from the Old Testament on and forward. You also see that the Spirit involved with regard to the birth of Christ. The Holy Spirit impregnated the Virgin Mary with the incarnate Son. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Now how this actually happened, I'm not going to be able to explain that to you. <laughs> Uh, don't expect me to give you some type of biological explanation or some type of a description as to how the Spirit of God was able to impregnate uh, Mary. I, I don't know. All I know is it happened. And so we've got to, in faithful understanding, understand that the, the Spirit is the one who's responsible for bringing the incarnate Son to Mary uh, and helped, uh, was involved with regard to his birth. Our mortal minds don't quite understand exactly how he was able to send his spirit to create a child within Mary. It defies biology. It defies logic on this earth. However, we must accept it. It's been prophesied in the past. And you see in the Old Testament prophecies that it was going to occur. And then you see it being fulfilled by the spirit and his involvement in the ministry of Christ and his mission coming uh, to earth there as he was involved in the birth. You also see the Spirit being involved uh, with regard to the personal life of Jesus Christ. The Spirit was very prominent in the personal life of Jesus Christ as Jesus lived on this earth and he taught and he walked among men as, as he uh, performed the miracles, as he did all these things. The Spirit was prominent. He was with Christ throughout his life. The Lord was given 
the Holy Spirit without measure at his baptism. We see in John chapter 3, verse 34, Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. And the concept there is that Jesus was given the Spirit so that he would be able to have those things necessary to fulfill his mission on this earth. The Spirit was with Jesus during temptation, if you look. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Mark chapter 1, verse 12. The Spirit empowered Christ to return back to Galilee in Luke chapter 4, verse 14. The Lord himself recognized the Spirit's power was within him, as we see in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. And Jesus offered himself through the Holy Spirit, as you read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. The Spirit was prominent with regard to the personal life of Jesus Christ. A lot of times we glance over those scriptures because we're reading the stories or we're reading the tale of his temptations there. And we don't really underline or understand the, the importance or the involvement of the Spirit in those activities. But if you read those scriptures now, especially as we're focusing on the, the study of the Spirit, and you read the story of the temptations of Christ, or you read as he came back into Galilee and began teaching in Luke chapter 4, if you read it, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, the concept of the Spirit's involvement on the life of Christ cannot be missed because the Spirit was right there step by step with the Lord as he lived and dwelt among men here on this earth. As he taught, as he performed miracles, as he did all these things, uh, the personal life of Jesus was encapsulated, was, uh, was hopelessly tied with regard to the Spirit and His work and His involvement in those matters. You also see the fact that the Spirit was involved in the, the, the public life or the public ministry of Jesus. We've kind of, uh, uh, I guess, given a little bit of this in the, the previous point as well, but it's not just the personal life of Christ where the Spirit was involved, but the Spirit was also very involved with regard to His public life and His public ministry. Uh, Jesus cast out demons by the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. That's the power, that's the, the ability that the Spirit gave Christ as he lived on this earth, as he ministered unto those, that, that Christ says he did this with the Spirit. Um, Jesus preached by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 21. Uh, it talks about that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, and gave commands and commandments, instructions by the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 2. Before Christ left this earth in Acts, in the book of Acts, it said that as he was there among all of his disciples and for all those many days, that he gave them commandments. And if you look at that passage, something we kind of skip over because we're focused obviously on Christ and him giving directions, him giving commandments, and, and all those days that he was there with the apostles there. And verse 2, though, it says, until that day he was taken up to heaven, after after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so you see here that, that the focus usually is upon Jesus. The focus is usually upon the fact that Christ would be taken up into heaven. The fact usually is and focused upon and preached that Christ gave commandments and gave directions to his disciples and his apostles before he was taken to heaven. But if you look in the scripture, you cannot help but see that by the Holy Spirit, Jesus gave those orders. And so the Holy Spirit undergirds, I'm using undergirds, undergirds the commandments and the principles that Jesus himself gave to his disciples before he left this earth. It wasn't just Jesus alone. 
It was an intricate, interwoven connection between Jesus and the Spirit because the Spirit was always involved in his personal life. He was involved in the public ministry. And then ultimately, you're going to see, as I've already alluded to the fact as well, is that, that the Spirit was involved with regard to Jesus' death and his resurrection. As the Lord offered himself through the Spirit, the Spirit was aided by Jesus on the cross. The Spirit also helped Jesus at the resurrection we see in Romans chapter 1. Uh, verse 4, 1 Peter 3, verse 18, Acts chapter 2, verses 33 through 36. All descriptive verses talking about the fact that the Spirit was there with Christ during the death and the resurrection. It's important to note that the Spirit was always with Jesus on earth. In every aspect of his birth, his life, his death, our Lord was aided. He was helped. I would say he was comforted by the Spirit that was upon him. Very much like we can be today. Maybe not in the exact same manner, in the exact same way. But we know that when Jesus left this earth, that he gave us those same abilities from sent by sending his spirit to man. And you see that unfolding throughout the, the New Testament as we look in the book of Acts and we look at the book, uh, all the different um, epistles that are written there, the, the involvement, the interaction, the abilities that the spirit brings upon men and and really, I think the, the, the chapters in John really help give us this point more than any others. And you see several key texts in John, which I don't think we're going to be able to fill uh, this week. And Scott, I may let you go ahead and pick up here. This is your bread and butter anyways with regard to Acts 14, uh, John 14, 15, and 16. But a couple of key texts that are pointed out here as to what the Spirit does in the New Testament. Uh, with regard to how he interacted and what he did and what work that he performed with regard to the New Testament and the first century church. Uh, these texts in John help us understand these things uh, with regard to uh, what we want to see with regard to the scriptures. And we want to be able to uh, see exactly uh, what the, the Spirit does or did really for them in the first century. You can translate and kind of explain a little bit of how it compares to us today as well as we look at John chapter 14 through 16. But there are six real good passages there in the book of John that really focuses and really kind of helps the disciples, I believe at that time, understand what this helper or comforter would bring to them. And by translation of us, uh, looking at this scripture, we're able to comprehend and hopefully understand a little bit more of how the Spirit operated there in the New Testament to help give them this security, to help seal them in their Christianity, to help give them this purpose direction, to help show them how they are pledging themselves by having the Spirit to God and the mission that God has set forth to us. There are six passages, and I think these are listed on your handouts there for you. But if you look at these six passages, these six passages help us look um, about the work of the Spirit in the New Testament. And so you see the first one is John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17. And as you see on your handout, I think I've left blanks for you there for these. But uh, the first one, of course, emphasizes the fact that the comforter will come. The comforter will come. If you look at John chapter 16 real quick, uh, and this is really where I was wanting to focus most of the day, but we know that doesn't happen with me usually. Uh, but with regard to the Spirit's involvement here, you'll see in verses 16 through 17 that Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper uh, that he may be with you forever. And that is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but... but 
you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And so you see here in these first two verses, this first key text in John chapter 14, you'll see a, a emphasis here on the comforter coming to the disciples. Now, a couple of quick points there with regard to what your, your scriptures may say. I actually, my version, New American Standard uses the word helper. So comforter slash helper, maybe what you want to put in your, your handout if you're filling out those blanks there. Uh, some scriptures uh, and some um, translations, the King James Version uses the word comforter. Uh, New American Standard uses helper. I believe the ESV also uses the word helper. Uh, when you look at this, uh, the name of who Christ will be sending, and of course you see it being compared, the helper is equated to the spirit of truth there in verse 17. So we know the helper or comforter that, that Jesus is telling his disciples about is indeed that helper or comforter of God, and that would be the Holy Spirit. And so the spirit of truth will come after being sent by God at the request of Jesus to be with the disciples. Now, real quick, a couple points. First of all, the disciples are not told to pray for the spirit here. There's no direction for the disciples to ask for God to send the spirit to them. And I think that you see that as a comparison even to today's religious world, that you see people trying to request that the Spirit be, be placed upon them or the shower me with the Spirit or please send your Spirit unto me. And there's no way, no form and passage of Scripture, and it's definitely not here in John chapter 14, where any disciples, any followers, any Christians are requested or told to request the Spirit from God. You see that? So when you see your friends or your family asking for the Spirit of God. You might want to remind them of this point here. Christ asked for us. There's no need for us to ask for it anymore, right? We don't have to ask for the Spirit to be brought onto us. And here, Christ himself does not command the disciples to request and ask for the Spirit. Now, real quickly, I want to point this point out before I hand it off, hopefully, to Scott to cover for me next week while I'm at Last Leaders. The comforter here is described as what? Another comforter or another helper. And what that's going to underscore there is the fact that it's not Jesus Christ. There is someone else. It is a different individual. It is a different being. It is someone not Christ that would be there coming to comfort them, coming to help them as Jesus once helped them this other helper, this another helper would come and be there for them. And so we'll pick up here next week, hopefully looking a little for, farther and, and deeper into these six passages here and seeing how we see Christ calling upon the, the comforter to come and what, in fact, the comforter would do for Christians there in the first century. We'll pick up here next